and welcome to the National Kidney Foundation's Life as a Nephrologist podcast. I'm your host, Natasha Dave, a nephrologist and medical director for Strive Health. For this month's episode, we're focusing on healthcare disparities affecting the LGBTQ community. For many LGBTQ people, fear of discrimination and harassment can get in the way of seeking medical care when they're sick and can put them at increased risk for serious health problems, including kidney disease. In this episode, we sat down with the experts in sexual and gender minority health, as well as Pennsylvania State Representative and Living Kidney Donor Brian Sims, to talk about how to create an inclusive and affirming environment in a healthcare setting. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to the special National Kidney Foundation podcast. My name is Danuchika Mahatage, and I'm a general nephrologist at Duke University Hospitals in Durham, North Carolina. And I'm so thrilled to welcome some very special guests uh, that we'll be chatting with today. Hello, everyone. My name is Mitchell Lunn. I'm an uh, assistant professor of medicine and of epidemiology and population health at Stanford University School of Medicine. I am a uh, general nephrologist by training, although I spend about 75% of my time conducting uh, research on uh, health uh, disparities and health inequities uh, in the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, uh, or LGBTQ plus communities. I mean, thank you for having me. My name is Brian Sims. I'm a state representative out of Center City, Philadelphia, here in the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, I am in my, my serving in my fifth term in the House of Representatives. I'm a civil rights attorney by trade. And when I joined the General Assembly in 2011, uh, did so as the first openly LGBTQ person ever elected to our state's General Assembly. It's uh, such an honor to be able to chat with you all today. And I'm going to just go ahead and start asking us some questions that I think everyone will love to hear um, your thoughts about. So just to, to start, um, how how is your identity shaped or affected your health care and your kidney health? You know, you can think back to how this might have happened even prior to meeting your kidney doctor, per se. Well, you know, I, I will tell you that as somebody who has worked in LGBTQ equality for a good portion of my life, one of the things that has always been abundantly clear to me is the the disproportionate care or disparities in care across the LGBTQ spectrum. I'm a cis white man, and but for the fact that I am not heterosexual and that I don't come from money, I have almost every privilege that a person in the United States um, could be born with for through no control of my own. I woke up in this body. I didn't choose it. I didn't work for it. I just was, you know, I, I just woke up in it and I, and I receive a lot of privileges as a result of it. And, and one of the things that's also been really clear to me over my career is that un unless people with privilege are standing up and pushing back against those that are using their privilege for, for bad, for bad purposes, then, then those disparities are going to continue to perpetuate. And so for me, it became, it became very clear that I needed to make sure that I understood more about how healthcare was impacting, you know, trans Latinas. How does it impact a, a first, a first generation immigrant from Guatemala? How is a woman impacted in, in Butler County, Pennsylvania, not to try to see the, these disparities through the lens of my own eyes, but through the eyes of people that are most impacted by them. 
And I think I would I would add on Representative Sims' comments. You know, as a as a medical student, um, you know, also uh, with a huge amount of privilege, uh, attending medical school at, at Stanford, my colleagues and I were really uh, I think impressed by the fact that we were taught nothing about caring for LGBTQ people. And um, as I got, you know older and you know increasingly independent <laughs> after school uh realized that there was um you know really the need to um that i had to educate my own doctor about how to care for me <laughs> and uh and and so i think you know we've realized now over the past you know 15 years or so that there's a huge amount of healthcare provider education that needs to be done for caring for for LGBTQ people um, that you know has slowly changing and is slowly advancing over the past you know decade or decade or two. We've started to you know we come into new eras with um, a variety of of uh, intersections between LGBTQ people and and kidney health, and I think one of them is is pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for for HIV. So, um, as many uh, people listening to this, and especially the nephrologists listening to this, will know, is that you know tenofovir is a is a is a primary component in 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 PrEP that has been you know, associated to be uh, to be toxic to the kidney, and so we've, we're seeing a, you know this wonderful advancement in biochemical prevention of HIV infection, with um, for some folks some some noticeable some noticeable kidney kidney effects, and then as as society and the field has also advanced in gender affirming hormone therapy for transgender people, we're now starting to you know uh, pay closer attention to kidney function, figuring out how we actually estimate kidney function in people who may have been assigned one sex at birth and are now taking uh, gender-affirming hormones. And so how are we actually accurately um, assessing people's kidney function? So there's a variety, and those are just two examples, but there's a variety of intersections between, uh, between kidney health and, um, and, uh, and uh, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, which gets, of course, even more complicated in settings like transplant, and of course, intersectionalities with race and ethnicity, as uh, as we've been um, discussing uh, various modifiers of uh, equations that we use to estimate uh, kidney function. Thank you both for that. I and and just for our audience, uh, either of you, feel free to jump in on that. For those of you who may not know, who are listening, how would you define the LGBTQ plus community? Oh, I, I will take a quick crack at this, in part because I, I, there's something that I hope most people are able to remember. You know, we, we often talk about the LGBTQ plus communities as though that is the breadth of who we all are and forget about the plus. And, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when it was just, you know, lesbian and gay. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when it was before that when it was just F. Right. I got I, 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 what I tell people is that while oftentimes these conversations and we talk about people that are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, that our community is so much larger than that. And it's not that we're rediscovering, you know, com community members, it's that people are finally being able to discover their identity for themselves and, um, and identify who they are for themselves. And so, you know, we are, we are gender non-conforming, we're gender non-binary, we are two-spirit, we're so much more than just LGBTQ+. My mom calls us the ABS community, all but straight. 
how's the ABS community today, mom? We're, you know, we're fabulous. And, and so, you know, maybe that leaves out our allies, which I don't want to do. But um, I think it's really important to recognize that we are a extremely broad and expanding subsection of the community. Yeah, and I think you know the 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 benefit and the challenge of of that is that we oftentimes get lumped as one umbrella. I think especially from a from a medical and from a scientific perspective, it is it is a paper about the LGBT community singular. When in fact, as Representative Sims is mentioning, there are communities, and I think that's the language that we tend to you have you know gradually shifted towards is that it's the LGBTQ plus communities plural uh, to emphasize that we are um, made up of many diverse and dynamic communities that have different health experiences, different um, different experiences in society, um, uh, you know, and different resiliencies. And so I think there's um, you know an importance in in acknowledging that as much as we have conventionally been collapsed into one umbrella, we are now, I think, starting as, as, as more data collection is happening and we're starting to realize that there are differences in the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q, the plus, and all the letters that fall within the plus that, um, that we need to start disaggregating the groups and, and, um, and looking at people uh, for their individual communities in which they belong. And I think, you know, of course, again, to, har to hearken a little bit on the intersectionality component, LGBTQ plus people are members of every race and ethnicity, are of all ages, are of all religions, of all economic, uh, socioeconomic statuses, of all education levels. And so, um, you know, there's uh, obviously intersecting identities, intersecting resiliencies, intersecting disparities, and um, intersecting stigmas and discriminations that happen uh, across multiple groups. Oh, thank you for that. I and one of the things that I think a lot of folks might want to hear about is how you tell your story to your healthcare provider. So, how do you kind of gain that comfort and in, in talking about your sexuality, talking about your gender identity? Um, and would love to hear again positive and 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 less positive experiences in this arena. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to to dive in on, on this one. I, you know, I'm originally from Bismarck, North Dakota. I grew up in a really, you know, conservative uh, part of the country, a city of, uh, even though people have maybe heard of Bismarck as the capital, it was about 55,000 people when I lived there. So it was not, you know, a, a large city. And I, um, you know, struggled with my with my identity as a as an adolescent. You know, I think I knew that I was different as a gay man and when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 uh, and then didn't really come out to myself until I was 15 or 16 and didn't come out um, to friends or family until I was uh, until I was 18. And so it's, um, you know, it was a very difficult, <laughs> very difficult uh, time in my in my life. And, you know, now I like to say that I'm a professional gay because I just do LGBT stuff all the time. I see primary care patients in LGBT clinic. I do LGBT research most of the time. Um, but I still have a little anxiety, a little nervousness whenever I'm coming out to a new healthcare provider. You know, I live in San Francisco. I work at Stanford, you know, a place that has, you know, the Bay Area is, you know, 15 or 16 percent LGBT. It's the, one of the, you know, greatest concentrations of LGBT people in the, in the world. And I, as somebody who talks, you know, I say the letters LGBT probably thousands of times a day, and I still have problems, you know, a little bit, because, and the reason for that is you don't know how you're going to be um, 
received by somebody, right? You know, there are, and it's, I, you know, I talk about the provider patient relationship as one of the most, um, you know, intimate relationships that ex professionally <laughs> that exist professionally, right? You know, you meet somebody for five or 10 minutes, you talk to them, they, um, you tell that they, they, they tell you to take your clothes off and put on this paper uncomfortable gown, which you do, and then you let them touch and examine you, right? All within like 20 or 25 minutes. And so it's a really place of vulnerability for many people uh, with the power resting in the providers, um, you know, side and that is just a challenging situation and so it's a place of vulnerability and a place that is um uh one that you don't necessarily know how you're gonna um be received by your provider and so it's um it continues to be a challenge i don't i don't think there's a way that i tell my story every single time it's not a uniform way uh every single time but um it is one that still causes a little bit of anxiety I would agree with that. And I, I sort of similarly, I, I have spent the last 20 years of my life, not just openly LGBT, but very visible in that. I don't, I don't find that I actually have to come out to a lot of people anymore, but I do have to affirm that I am an out person and that I want my care to be reflective of that. Um, I, over the years, have traded doctors a number of times to, you know, to find out that just because a doctor is LGBTQ themselves doesn't mean that they are going to be particularly LGBTQ affirming of their, in their care. Um, it just because um, uh, someone, a friend that is LGBTQ has had a positive experience at a doctor's office doesn't mean that that positive experience will translate to other patients. I, I find that as a queer person, I have to be very proactive about my health care and my health care providers. I have followed doctors to different practices because I, I felt like they were fully understanding and respectful of my life and my experiences. But I also, as someone who, you know, as someone who went through a transplant at a facility that is in one of the top 10 cities in the United States, I still had to explain to people what, what PrEP was. I was on Truvada at the time, and now I have to be on Discovy, and why is that, and what do those things do? And no, I didn't fail to tell you that I'm HIV positive. I'm not HIV positive. You know, there are a lot of things like that that really do require LGBTQ people to really to have to be very forward with who we are and our care. I find this is especially true if you are if you're a transgender American. Um, I my roommate, one of my best friends, is transgender, and to, the the disparities in how healthcare providers speak to her versus how they speak to me are are glaring. And it's it, it even boils down to you know assuming other people's knowledge about their own bodies and their own health and all of the sort of the discrimination that can come with assuming other people don't know who they are or what they are or why they are or what they need. And I, I see that I see that reflected all across the United States, certainly here in my state as well. Oh, thank you for that. Representative Sims, I would love to hear you honestly build on this idea that you were just talking about the challenge and complexity of, of building trust, right? A provider's job is to earn trust. How does a provider earn the trust of you, uh, of LGBTQ folks? What does that look like operationally? Uh, it looks like a couple of different things. One, it, I, I need them, of course, to understand me and my care and what I need, but I also need to make sure that they are fully inclusive. I don't want a doctor that understands who I am as a gay man, but won't understand or treat a trans woman, for example. I understand there are a myriad of different you know, differences, requirements. Every patient is different. But for, for me, I have seen far too many people that 
are seemingly understanding, okay with, supportive of LGB people that then draw a line at trans people. And when I see that in healthcare, especially, it sets off every single red flag as it should. I'll also say that how do I determine it? Well, you know, it's kind of like like you do when you go to a mall or when you go to an accountant or when you when you're meeting new people, you know, after hours. There's there are those little cues in the same way that I'm really good at picking up on microaggressions. I, I can tell if, you know, if somebody wants to make a sexist joke around me or I, all of us are pretty, pretty in tune to that. As a queer person, we're very tuned into microaggressions about the LGBTQ communities. But on the reverse of that, I'm also very tuned into what I call sort of micro inclusivity, using correct pronouns, asking me how I want, just because I present as a cis white man doesn't mean that you know that I, that I am a cis white man. Being honest, being upfront, not thinking that questions are embarrassing. It's one of the big things that I, I see oftentimes is people say, oh, I support LGBTQ people. And then they want to ask a very clinical appropriate question and are embarrassed to ask it. Well, if you're embarrassed to ask it, then you don't, you're not fully embracing who I am, what I am and what I, and what my needs are. I don't need somebody's personal embarrassment to ever or, or concerned ever impact the type of care that they're providing to me or others. Thank you for that. And, and Mitch would love to hear from you on this. And then if you wouldn't mind expanding on what um, a gender affirming provider looks like, what does that sure. mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think the trust building components, you know, in addition to the, the, the ideas and suggestions that Representative Sims mentioned include, you know, when we take, you know, rather comprehensive histories about people's social life, uh, you know, and, and other aspects in their life is not making assumptions, right? I think the biggest thing is that we end up making assumptions that people are partnered or that they only have one partner or may have multiple partners or what the genders of those partners are. Um, we make assumptions about what kind of sex people have or don't have or that people are having sex when in fact they may not. And so all these things that really, you know, as you make more and more assumptions, even though they may not result or, or relate directly to kidney health, they start to either erode away at or hopefully build trust with the, with, with the, with the patient even though they're not, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, uh, nephrology related, related questions, making assumptions about who the, um, about who the visitor or the, you know, is with them in the exam room, accompanying them to their visit. Oh, this must be your sister when it's actually your partner, right? <laughs> or something like that, or must be, you know, and so I think there's, it's really relates to, to making assumptions. You know, I, again, I do this for, for a living and I make mistakes at this, right? This is something that takes practice um, and everybody's going to make mistakes. And I think that's a fear for a lot of providers. It's like, how can I even get into this? What if I, you know, I'm going to be putting my foot in my mouth so many times. And the answer is, yeah, you are. <laughs> and that's, and that's part of it. I, you know, I make mistakes every day. And the point of doing that is so that I learn and get better and you apologize and move on. It is, you know, it is recognizing, um, you know the 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 mistakes are 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 an important aspect of improving, um, you know your ability to to care for LGBTQ plus people, and then from a gender affirming perspective, this relates to many things. Um, you know, Dr. Sims mentioned or Representative Sims, I've now made you a dying. You know, right? <laughs> um, uh, mentioned the you know pronoun usage, and um, you know that is one thing we have. Um, you know, at the LGBTQ plus health program at Stanford, we have really that process begins from. Um, 
when they walk in the door or even before they get in the door of the clinic, making sure that um, that there are welcoming spaces. So that includes information that's collected, you know, perhaps through an electronic patient portal prior to the visit, um, but then also from the very first person that they meet, making sure that their name, their the name that they use is correctly reflected in the electronic health record along with their pronouns. So that gets passed to the back office staff so that when they're calling a patient from the waiting room that they're using the right name. Um, we have only, um, you know, single person restrooms that are non-gendered. So there's not, um, 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 you know, a, a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. They're a bathroom, period, <laughs> right, for people uh, to use. And so, um, you know, there's, you know, understanding um, people's identities, understanding that people's identities change. So asking about people's identities over time, because, you know, I did not identify as a gay man when I was a 10 year old and I do now, right? You know, so I think, you know, that, that there's that uh, I think illustrates many of that. Gender affirming care can also include um, gender affirming mental health providers. And so thinking about how to hook folks uh, into into that sort of those services. It can then include um, the, um, for some gender minority people, so people who are don't identify their gender, current gender identity is not with uh, you know uh, the sex that is uh, that they were assigned at birth. There's a variety. Some people go through both social transitioning, say changing their name, changing their appearance, changing um, the pronouns that they use. Other folks may decide to embark on on medical transition, which we typically think of as hormone therapy. So um, there are you know practices across the country and more and more that are happening, including some telemedicine providers that are um, providing gender affirming hormone therapy. Uh, for gender transition. Uh, and then there are, of course, surgical procedures. And so there are really, you know, fewer and fewer people at each of these. Many people do social transitioning, fewer people do medical transitioning, and even fewer people uh, do surgical transitioning. And so the, there, you know, are now, uh, you know, about a hundred different procedures that can be classified as gender affirming surgical procedures. So these in, you know, typically, um, you know, I think people always think about gender affirming surgeries, you know, typically genital related surgeries. That is a, a just a, you know, a small component of, of surgeries and procedures that exist and can include many other things, including, uh, you know, uh, electrolysis or laser hair removal, uh, other skin related, uh, and, and, you know, body shape related procedures, etc. So there's really a whole slew of them from things that are done exclusively in the outpatient setting to much more complicated uh, surgical procedures requiring hospitalization. And so thinking and being knowledgeable about those is one component of gender affirming care and also knowing who your contacts are <laughs> in your community or in your area for, uh, for things that you may not be uh, expert in yourself. Um, Representative Sims, I, I really appreciate you earlier sharing a little bit about transplantation and that experience. And I would actually love to hear a bit more um, about that, what that experience was like, what resources or support you had that helped that process or which you might've wished were present um, that, that weren't. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I am, um, I think just this month, I am now um, a, uh, yeah, I'm exactly 18 months out from my own transplant. I'm a, I'm a living donor. I donated to, 
um, a gentleman uh, who lives maybe about six or seven blocks away from me, who I, I sort of tangentially knew a little bit before beforehand. He he was in renal failure, and as a lot of um, LGBTQ people are, he didn't he didn't have um, family that he was able to rely upon um, uh, for a direct uh, a direct donation. And was going through the process of trying to identify, you know, donors that would be a good match, and um, and really had had fallen short and wasn't able to do it. And sometime around the fall of of 2019, I was moving offices within my city, within Philadelphia, and my new office was located across the street from the kidney transfer clinic at Jefferson Hospital. And we had a little bit of time to kill one day and I walked over and I actually didn't know his last name at the time. And I said, you have a patient and here's his first name and, and you're looking for matches. And I, I, I'd like it if you draw my blood. And I got a call back about a week later saying that the initial draw had been good, but you know, there were obviously follow-up, follow-up tests and more blood work that needed to be done. And what developed is that over the next two, two and a half months, it became clear that I was, I was a near perfect match for him. I was called, they, they called it a six for six match. And um, we scheduled surgery. It, it was bumped about a month. And in January of 2020, um, my parents drove up to Philadelphia. We, they stayed at a hotel near my house. That morning, uh, the, my recipient and his husband and I and my parents walked over to the hospital and checked in. And I checked out six days later, about four ounces lighter. And um, he has has improved every single day since then, as as I, all of you with with medical degrees can explain far better than I can. The sort of cascade effect that his body had gone through during renal failure had really had, you know, really had really hurt his body. And getting, you know, getting his kidney health better was the beginning of getting all of his health better. And it was going to take some time. Um, you know, the. The process was, there were parts of it that were scary. I, I, you know, I, I, I donated a lot of blood over, over those couple of months. And there was a time or two where, you know, it felt like a little bit, maybe a little too much blood had been drawn at one time. And, and I'll admit that while I, I truly enjoyed the doctors and of course the nurses who were involved in my surgery, um, the, the, the hassles, the administrative hassles leading up to it were, you know, th there was a, a time or two where I, I asked myself if this was still the right thing to do, um, or, you know, talk about building trust in, in, uh, in a hospital or building trust in medical professionals. But, but at, at all times, it was just very, very clear that I had, that this was a gift that I could give, that, that the, the opportunity for me to be able to donate a kidney that, you know, that I would be perfectly healthy afterward, and that another person in this world would get to would get to walk this world for 20, 30 more years, maybe than he would have otherwise just seemed too, too much to pass up. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people, uh, I don't think I, from personal experience, a lot of people have asked me about my health afterward. Like, why would I sacrifice my health for another person? And I'm, I'm very upfront to say that I did not. And I would not, my health is great. Um, you know, I, I have a, a protein level that's slightly lower than it was before this. And as my, my kidney sort of grows and learns to address my, you know, the new system, that'll, that'll change a little bit, but my health has never been better. And this didn't have a, a negative impact on my health long-term. And I, it was really important for me that people know that. Thank you. That's a really extraordinary story. And thank you for sharing it. I think it'll inspire many people. And uh, again, really appreciate you. Um, in terms of the kinds of challenges that other folks might face, including some of our um, patients who are on dialysis. 
Dr. Lund, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, any stories that you've heard about um, LGBTQ plus kidney patients navigating social and other challenges in dialysis um, and thoughts about how dialysis units might be able to improve, you know, a climate that is truly inclusive and affirming. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. I think that it's, um, you know, dialysis is a big deal, right? I think we, I think, you know, we all know that, right? You know, this kind of three or four hours, you know, at least three times a week, sometimes longer for other folks. It's a huge time commitment for people and they spend a significant part of their life, um, you know, many folks in a dialysis unit. Of course, there's folks who are doing, you know, home modalities, both peritoneal dialysis and home hemo. And so, you know, for the, for the folks that are doing dialysis in center, um, it's a huge social actual space, right? You're you're next to you get to be uh, you know next to other dialysis patients. You're fr- become uh, you know friends and obviously acquainted with other people on dialysis as well as the staff at those dialysis units, both the dialysis technicians as well as the the nurses and the nephrologists that rotate uh, that rotate through those units. And so um, you know part of that all is um, thinking about how episodes of discrimination and of, of, of transphobia, of homophobia are tolerated or hopefully not tolerated within a dialysis unit. Um, you know, you can imagine if you're an LGBTQ person talking to the person next to you and they ask you about your, your personal life or who you live with or what, you're so, what you do socially, um, those sorts of things can potentially be stigmatizing. And um, in a dialysis unit, you're a little bit captive, right? You're literally connected to, to a machine. You can't just get up and, and walk away from those situations. And so um, they can result in some, in some rather um, some tense, um, you know, interactions. And so part of the ways to think about that is having, you know, codes of conduct, uh, kind of, you know, uh, or, you know, kind of ground rules almost for the way that people um, will behave in dialysis units, both towards themselves and towards towards other people um, to create a respectful environment for people. I think the things that happen in a traditional healthcare setting like a clinic also apply in dialysis units. So using people's correct name, using people's correct pronoun, having bathrooms that are appropriate, making sure that when, um, you know, when, when uh, people need privacy, that people are given privacy, that there are privacy screens and a variety of things in dialysis units to, to help in situations that um, may be unexpected or, or, or challenging. And that, um, and that especially for our transgender and gender expansive colleagues that, um, that, you know, people's bodies and their experiences are not something for curiosity. They're not something for exploration. Like, you know, you're there to do dialysis. They're there to get dialysis done. It is not, um, you know, a time for, for an inquisition about uh, what, procedures or what their experience necessarily necessarily has been. So I think, you know, creating a really, you know, a really, again, welcoming, affirming, unassuming environment with, um, with some physical uh, environmental items that are, uh, that make people feel safe, as well as some policies and procedures that uh, make people feel safe and actually, you know, provide some, um, some addressing of issues that are that are inappropriate to happen in a dialysis unit. Those I think are all important important aspects. And part of that includes making sure that all the staff, so diet technicians, nurses, uh, and nephrologists are aware of what that is, have some training about how to uh, you know to have uh, culturally competent and culturally humble 
uh, care with with all patients, and that includes uh, LGBTQ patients. And so that oftentimes requires some additional effort from dialysis companies and dialysis units. Um, you know, I always like to to say in the in the equity work uh, that there's a little bit of extra work <laughs> that's needed to make sure that our communities that have been underserved and underrepresented or oppressed actually feel welcome. And that extra work is part of the work that we all do as healthcare providers or people in the healthcare system to you know in in pursuit of equity. And uh, and that's an important aspect. Thank you. Thank you. I that that. Uh, commentary really resonates because I think for many of us living in in a variety of parts of the country, the stories of oppression and discrimination and marginalization still occur. These are not just remnants of the past. And I can think of an example, um, and uh, you know, of a person who was trying to get their dialysis treatment in their unit and told to go to the hospital because they are trans person, um, because of the climate uh, that was, you know, truly hostile and transphobic, um, and then you know, the lack of a clear policy that uh, in that particular unit that altered that environment. Um, particularly from you, Representative Sims, as, as uh, a representative, can you tell us a little bit about um, important advocacy and, and legislative efforts, the kinds of things that you know, healthcare professionals, kidney professionals need to be advocating for um, as well at a policy level? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah happily. You know, one of the, the big the big problems in LGBTQ advocacy right now is that far too many people believe that we are protected under the law in places where we are simply not protected under the law. You know, every single state in the United States and the federal government protect certain categories of people from certain types of discrimination. And we all know them. And they're, they're sort of a, a part of the, the sort of fabric of American civil rights. You're protected because of your race, your religion, your nationality, sometimes your gender, sometimes a disability. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, rarely because of your sexual orientation and your gender identity, both real or perceived. And those areas of protection generally fall in housing, employment, public accommodations, insurance, education and medical care. Now, depending on what state you're in, your state's Human Relations Act or its former Ethnic Intimidations Act usually cover those things. And, you know, there are upwards of 30 states in the United States where LGBTQ people are not fully protected under the law in states' non-discrimination laws. And so for me, especially as a state legislator, why, while I, I, I believe deeply in the work of equality that's happening in Congress and at the federal level, what I know is that the, the advocacy that we all do at the municipal level with our, our towns, our townships, our cities, and that we do at the statewide level with our general assemblies is, the, uh, is truly the work of non-discrimination. It is truly the work of equality. And Every single person can call their elected official, can call their legislators and say, hey, I want you to support this effort. More importantly is, you know, I, I as somebody who chairs the LGBT Equality Caucus for, for the Pennsylvania General Assembly, 
you know, there are 26 pieces of legislation right now that I'm tracking that I believe are LGBT, uh, that, that impact the LGBTQ community, but very few of them actually reference LGBTQ people. Raising the minimum wage, equal pay, um, you know, those, those, making sure that there's, you know, child health care, those are all, health care in general, those are all LGBTQ uh, or policies that impact LGBTQ people, and, and therefore anybody can get engaged with them. I'll say this last thing, and frankly, you're already sort of showing an example of this. My colleagues, elected officials are generalists. You might find a few that have a particular expertise in something the way that I do with civil rights, but by and large, we're all generalists. And we're working on hundreds, sometimes thousands of different issues. And that's why experts are so important. And it's why having doctors that understand not just the implications of healthcare, but how those play out for LGBTQ people are so valuable to people like me. I, I, the Rolodex of, of expert medical experts that I rely upon what, you know, for little bits of information, to review pieces of legislation, to push back against misinformation is, is pretty endless. And, and that's one of those places where we often talk about not being invited to the table, um, that mo most people don't, don't give you a seat and tell you to pull up to the table. You kind of have to take it yourself. And so I urge all, all medical professionals that have any degree of understanding or expertise in dealing with the LGBTQ communities to reach out to your elected officials. Don't wait for them to call you. Don't wait for them to reach out to you. They either don't know who you are, they don't know how to reach out to you, but they desperately need to hear from you and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Sims. And, and Dr. Lunn, your thoughts about what kidney care professionals can be doing to advocate for the kidney community and the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a slew of things, some of them looking at the policies uh, of your clinic, of your health system that you practice within. You know, if you're if you're in private practice, you're in charge of making your own policies and procedures. And so you're able to do that, right? If you're if you're if you're part of a larger health system or a group practice, thinking about ways that you have the ability to um, to to influence and affect some change there. So many, many health systems now have employee resource groups that are focused on um, LGBTQ plus communities and so interacting with them sometimes there's they have the oftentimes the ear of of a hospital leadership and hospital and health system administration to make to make changes um, of course you can ask about sexual orientation and gender identity in every single one of your of your of your patients um, you can um, have symbols in your practice on your white coat on your badge on your lanyard that show your uh, a welcoming and and affirming provider or you know and a safe person to talk to about LGBTQ plus related related issues um, for folks who are researchers I encourage you to ask about sexual orientation and gender identity in every single one of your patients even if there you don't conduct LGBTQ-focused research and include uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in the table one of every paper that you write, along with every other demographic that we that we collect. There's a huge amount of invisibility in the data because, frankly, sexual orientation and gender identity are simply not asked to participants, so we don't have any way to, to, um, to report that. And then... Um, I think the other thing that providers can do is vote. <laughs> so everybody can vote, <laughs> and so uh, and that that's voting, of course, in 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 local, state, and 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 national uh, elections. Uh, that's also voting in um, in. Uh, you know, in your university, in your in your health system, uh, you know, the, in in various organizations, um, you know, showing uh, 
you know that you have certain concerns and can vote you know along those are ways to start influencing uh, influencing change so there's you know a gajillion ways and some of them are low-hanging fruit and are very easy like getting uh, you know a variety of, of, of symbols to put in your office or on your um, on your on your badge white coat or lanyard and some take take more effort um, and and more practice um, and uh, but all of them I think start contributing to increasing visibility and uh, and that works to help uh, decrease the disparities thank you I, I think that just to recap you know I've heard you both mention the importance of our organizations supporting, um, legislation and advocacy that is inclusive. Um, us advocating as kidney care professionals for what I like to call structural competency or understanding the various intersecting factors that actually influence health and kidney health from housing to education. Um, the importance of kidney care professionals recognizing intersectionality. So the fact that you know, within our broad LGBTQ plus communities, we have, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups, we have people experiencing ableism, we have people experiencing multiple types of oppression. And so our job when we are advocating for LGBT people broadly is to understand how those intersecting forms of oppression influence the experiences that individuals um, may have. And then um, heard from all of you just research inclu inclusivity and just expanding the diversity of the workforce as well, engaging uh, folks who are LGBTQ plus in our all of our efforts um, that that we have. Um, to go ahead and and kind of close out, are there any last minute tips or thoughts for folks who are listening? Um, either patients in terms of finding affirming providers or uh, any thoughts about um, how providers and, and healthcare professionals can be more inclusive overall. Yeah, thanks, Janushka. I mean, I really think that this is this is a job for everybody. So there is something that every single person can do, whether you are a nephrologist, whether you're another healthcare provider, whether you help support dialysis units, whether you're a dietitian, whether you're a social worker, whether you're a patient, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a, a, a parent, a sibling, a friend, um, that there is always something that can be done to help uh, really improve the LGBTQ plus community. So thinking about small things that you can do um, actually will help the way society treats LGBTQ plus people. And in turn, that um, actually helps drive change in many, many other sectors, including including healthcare. And so, um, you know, even though your role may not be one where you're having direct contact with um, you know, with with patients on dialysis or with patients with kidney disease, um, there are uh, really still still things that that everybody can do that um, in turn uh, result in better health and well-being for folks. So I my so my my parting words are that this is everybody's job and it's every um, it's something that all of us can do. And I know enough to not reiterate when you hear somebody say something right, just to say that's the right thing. I'll, I'll only add that 
everybody can ask questions. It, you know, whether it's in government or in policy or in healthcare, I, I still think that the smartest thing that any of us can do is to ask the question that we don't know. Ask it honestly, don't imply degrees of shame, don't imply an answer, but no matter where you are, whether you are, are getting treatment or providing treatment, whether you are a patient or interacting with patients, Asking questions seems to be the best way of making sure that there's mutual understanding and clearing up misunderstandings because misunderstandings can impact people, you know, negatively in a lot of different ways. But misunderstandings with respect to a person's health care and their health care providers can be extremely dangerous. And I think this is this is the perfect opportunity for everybody to practice asking honest, open questions and being receptive to the answers. Thank you. This has really been tremendous and a privilege to be able to talk to both of you, Representative Sims and Dr. Lund. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your authenticity. Um, there is so much, I think, authenticity in sharing stories and experiences. That is um, ultimately what we need to be listening to more intently. And so I, I wanna also thank the National Kidney Foundation for creating the space to have this conversation. We need more of them. Um, and thank you to everybody who tuned in for your continuous engagement. This is really lifelong learning and lifelong self-education and a commitment to equity that will drive us all to the place that we need to be to see more justice uh, and more equity in the care uh, and the lives of LGBTQ folks around the country. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us and for leading this discussion.